Welcome. Welcome back, everybody, to uh, another exhilarating episode of, of Energy Bites. Rad Dad here, John Calfan. Um, Bobby is is out today. It is the last Friday of school before uh, Christmas, and so I think pretty much every school district in town has a half day, so he's he's uh, playing dad this afternoon, so it's just going to be me today, but today I've got Scott Paper. Um, excuse me. Got Scott, our, our field CTO at, at ANSYS. Thanks for uh, for joining us today, man. John, thanks for having me. And thanks for the warning about traffic. I'm going to leave you today. There's going to be a little bit more traffic, I guess. Oh, man. I mean, I, I actually posted it on Twitter. I put in, I always put in work on my Google or Apple yeah. uh, CarPlay this morning when I come in, and it was only 17 minutes from Katie. And I was yeah. like, oh, wow. Perfect. Miracles do happen. <laughs> yeah, that's gotta normally love, a. Gotta love uh, ways. 30, 45 minute uh, commute time. So yeah. it's, you've got, you've definitely got. 980 Fridays that yeah. you can definitely tell where yeah. traffic slows down, but then you've got kids not going to school today as well. Yeah, so that's right. going to be a, a right. good one. Well, good. Appreciate you coming on. You've Thanks got a, me. you've got a really cool kind of history experience career wise and stuff. And so I kind of want to jump in on both mechanical engineers, but uh, kind of tell us, you know, how you got into the energy and or tech space kind of going up to where you're at today at, at ANSYS. Sure. Um, well, look, engineering is one of those things. I think you, you, you discover it quite young. I was always quite curious about how things worked, and I had a habit of taking things apart. Uh, not necessarily all the screws came back in when I put the toaster back or the air popper, uh, but it, it was that kind of a childhood, right? You always kind of, which which led me more to the mechanical side, uh, only because I did an experiment with electricity. It, it didn't work out very well, <laughs> and. Uh, I said, you know, that, that may be a little too dangerous for me. So I, I, anyway, I ended up in mechanical engineering and then uh, really because, you know, of that, that curiosity and how things worked. And then, uh, to be honest with you, my, my favorite topic in college and high school was really physics. Yeah. And I, so as much as I didn't go into electrical engineering, I really was curious about how everything worked, electromagnetics and, and so forth. Material science was very interesting. So I kind of I kind of fell into it that way. And I think it affected my curiosity in science and, and engineering for my entire career. So even as I would, you know, became a CTO at whether it was GE, BP, or Baker Hughes in different roles, I stayed very curious technically. And um, I'm not saying I could go deep right. with each of you know, all these PhDs and scientists, but in especially in technology development, I found it to be, and you and I talked a little bit about this before, I, I found it to be uh, very enlightening in terms of where that tech may end up right? Uh, globally in a product space. I mean, you think glass is not that interesting. Bulletproof glass gets more interesting. And glass that can be used as a solar panel is even more interesting, right? right? So even something is, is maybe as simple as that uh, can evolve into products all over the world. So that that kind of curiosity to me was what led me into engineering. And, uh, you know, I started with an undergraduate degree and then realized, or at least my professor made me believe uh, after doing a summer internship at a paper mill with Bechtel in Maine, uh, I, I realized I wanted to be on the design side, not the field installation side. Uh, and he you said, look, you didn't enjoy your time at the paper mill? Well, you know, <laughs> the paper mills can be quite dangerous. They're not as dangerous as they used to be. <laughs> they, really but they used to be one of the more dangerous industries. No, for sure. Yeah. The, the amount of engineer, mechanical engineers specifically that I know that have worked at a paper mill yeah. in some form or fashion is pretty crazy actually yeah it is it is and none of them work at paper mills yeah. because of that experience well, I, I am from maine so paper mills are important but but uh to the economy up there but but ultimately yeah it, it, there was a you know it became more and more automated too yeah. they were one of those industries where they became because of the hazards right 
looked at automation differently. It wasn't just about pennies saved on the pound. It was right. it was about pounds saved on the body. Yeah. And so I think that that always made paper industry. But but I, after that, went to graduate school at Penn State, did my master's degree in aerospace engineering, and started using, frankly, the ANSYS product. You know, started doing computational work and in acoustics and structural mechanics and vibration, space trust dynamics, and these kinds of things. And I thought I would end up, uh, you know, looking at satellites right. when it was done. Instead, really, uh, you know, I ended up working for companies like GE. Uh, at the time, aerospace was a little bit in a slump. This was late, uh, mid, early, early 90s. So I ended up in automation, in robotics for compact disc and DVD manufacturing, which dates me. I mean, that stamps me pretty good uh, in terms of tech. But that's a fascinating time, though. Right? Yeah, like because it was, it was because we didn't then have tools, and we didn't have the connectivity. Yeah. But what was interesting about our equipment is because they were all automated, we did have all the sensing right. and equipment in one place. So that one brain, real time, we could do a lot of. Things. Yeah, it was quite interesting. Well, even from like a product perspective, right? Like, uh, man, I'm gonna forget the name of that book, but there's a a really good product book out there. Um, and you again, I'll remember that sure. probably at the end and i'll put it in the show notes but he talks a lot about like it's about the evolution of products and how they like generally speaking will spin out of a major like why can't the whole thesis of the book is why can't these giant ge style mm -hmm. companies or you know ibm back in the day why can't those companies innovate as quick or as fast mm -hmm. as like the new companies and stuff and one of the the examples they use in the book is they were talking about like early days of computer storage with the mm -hmm. hard like hard drives right and yeah. so like you know, whoever it was, C-Disc or uh, one of those old school players, you know, they were highly focused on just uh, making the desktop computer hard drives smaller, more efficient, et cetera. Well, in that project, this small group of guys developed this really small hard drive. It couldn't store as much, but it was very performant and low power consumption. Seagate didn't want it or whoever it was. And yeah. I don't remember, but they spun off a company that then started targeting the new laptop market sure. which you know right. was still very young and a lot right. of people didn't know what that was going to be and then they you know step change jumped right their prior company started mm -hmm. their own company because they didn't want anything to do with it and now they got bought back you know yeah. 10 years later sure. from that company sure. right and so even like in that space like i remember back then right we went from the og floppy disks to hard floppy disks sure. to cds and then i remember wanting a zip drive so bad right. just because of the storage right. capacity right like right. you could go i don't and even now, remember what I, it was, I don't know right? if any company would let you use a zip drive <laughs> yeah, right. because they think you're going to take the data home with you yeah they're probably you know so so it's funny how you say that i mean technologies get get adopted and then obsoleted mm -hmm. well yeah like yeah. hd dvd Very is right. another one right yeah. like the whole blu-ray dvd yeah. hd dvd yeah. kind of saga right? all of that it, it's always yeah. fascinating to see that like yeah over time how all that plays out and why one wins over the other and all of those different kind of knobs that turn so and i, I actually that would be one of the things that from a career standpoint uh, really helped me define where i would go next because I, I realized that in this very small company now when i joined it was like 20 of us when i left i was running it and about 300 of us um, but at the end of the day that company came and went with the tech right and you know we tried to leverage it into other kind of capabilities, and it just didn't work. And I think one of the things I learned in, in going to GE was, if you're in all these spaces, first of all, the pace and, and to your description in terms of how how do you move quicker in the innovation space? Sometimes you got to carve people out. 
mm-hmm. and let them focus. Um, and other times you've got to give them the support that only a scaling large company can give right. them, not just financial support, but maybe it's manufacturing know-how, lean know-how, whatever it might be, uh, to help them move more assuredly with less risk. That's still going to have risk in maybe the tech and or the development of the product or the market isn't ready. But you have the leverage of scale in terms of how you get there right. with, with some level of confidence that you're going to make it. Yeah. No, that's like, I think that's probably one of the most interesting dynamics in like the energy tech space specifically, right? Is you've mm-hmm. got, you know, every startup looks at all the big publicly traded companies and they're like, you've got all the resources in the world. How can't, how come you can't right. innovate faster right. or how come you don't want to adopt our new thing or technology yeah, or whatever. Right. And then the flip side of that is it's like, you've got all this innovation and you can move very quickly but you don't have those processes and structures to go scale, to manufacture, to support like big companies do certain things very well. That's why they got so big. Right. right? But smaller companies do the other thing really well, but then they can't, you know, there's that dichotomy of them where it's like them trying to bring a product to market is very different at a small startup than at a GE or IBM or big, huge. Well, you're really working on profitability, right? Different sides of that curve. You know, it's kind of interesting, you know, I had a stint, I had a couple of stints where I, I ran and operate like a COO role and I had manufacturing and engineering together. And I remember I, so I reported both to the senior leader of engineering at GE and the senior leader of manufacturing at GE at one point. And in those conversations, you know, they were typically not together when we, had, so I would talk to one guy one day and the next guy. And I remember the manufacturing leader said, listen, we can't overthink this. We're knuckle draggers. And I, I, I start the mid-sentences that don't ever call me a knuckle-dragger because there isn't any role in any big company where you shouldn't be. And I, I look in, in good faith, he was a good friend of mine. So it, it was not, he didn't mean it as an insult. But the reality is a lot of times the opportunity to innovate is in the white space between right. functions. Still today, we see you know a lot of verticalized and we decentralized engineering in most companies. I don't know whether it was... Uh, which of the you know consultancy companies told everybody to do that <laughs> yeah, right. 10 years ago, but it almost killed innovation because now we've taken engineers uh-huh. that used to work collectively together and we've separated them all and put them in little boxes right. and said, don't talk to each other, right? So moving around the cabin and in, in, in manufacturing at, at, a, at a company like GE or any of the other large industrial companies um, is in fact you know a science around how do we get this product safely and the quality control right. and all those things you probably don't have to worry as much about it's like when you're patching a, a software that you know mm-hmm. is showing you how to do TikTok dances right. i mean that's that isn't even comparable yeah. to the level of safety right and we thank god uh that we have in the, the big industrial space so it does change and i think a lot of those small companies wide-eyed pretty bright but at the same time don't understand that piece yeah. you have to live through a product failure oh, yeah. uh, at that at scale you know at the hundreds of millions mm-hmm. of dollars of scale uh, hopefully you don't have too many of those in your career, but when you do, uh, it changes the way you think about yeah. that stage gate design process and why it's so important to get as much as you know on the table early yeah. and tested and, and verified before you ship. But those are different business models. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell me, so, cause like I said, so you've got a very kind of interesting background, both on the tech, energy tech and product space, but what are some things, you know, that, that you see companies do well you know so to continue this conversation on right a lot of times what happens is those smaller players they innovate they move fast they have something unique proprietary etc and then they get bought by you know uh, a large publicly traded yeah whether that be you know on the oil field services side like a Halliburton Slumberjay Baker or 
you know, on the industrial manufacturing side, whether that be GE, IBM, whoever, right? Like they get bought and sometimes those companies buy them and then that technology goes to die. Yeah. A lot of right. in some right. of these companies, like notoriously. Mm-hmm. And then in other companies, they're actually incredibly good, even like with uh, oil and gas operator MMA or mm-hmm. MA, right? Like when Exxon bought XTO, mm-hmm. right? Like XTO kept their office and they, allowed them to operate as two separate companies, but with the support of, and the resources of the big company, right. instead of forcing the innovative little company that we bought because they were innovative and they had a new thing or they had a different approach and then forcing that into, you know, the monolith archaic or not archaic, but just rigid structure of yeah. a super major type thing. Right. Yeah. So what, what are some things you see, you've seen people do well as far as that, either with product or, you know, acquisition, or what are some areas where you've seen like, very common mistakes that you know you might not think. Yeah, you know I've lived through both of them, right? Yeah. So I've been acquired, and then and it, many times it was my small startup company was acquired by a German company, and that first run of that experience was you know a German company came in and said, okay, who's who's running engineering? You run the company. It was almost that start kind right. of a decision, and you know processes were what they were. We were a much more, what we'd say, kind of a Western startup. Now we weren't, we weren't a West Coast startup. We right. were an East Coast startup. And the, the difference is, you didn't know if you're getting paid that week, uh, <laughs> right? right. Uh, today, you know, it's a little different. These guys get big series of funding. But anyway, from that standpoint, uh, having been acquired by a German company, very similar at the time, I think, when Daimler and Chrysler were getting together, and I was reading about some of the cultural issues. We were a much smaller company, mm-hmm. um, and. Yet at the same time, going through a lot of that same cultural issue. So to, to me, it comes down to people. Yeah. John. And I, I've been on the acquiring where I'm doing the acquiring or been part of whether it's GE or Baker Hughes, where we've acquired companies in the energy space specifically. And we've recognized that financially, you know, the mothership can't afford to have a compliance issue there, right? right? So that quickly gets lined up. Um, HR then follows yeah, that same stretch. Say, HR is right behind for that. The, for kind of the same reason, yep. you know. And at the same time, you know, with some of these companies, the leadership and the understanding of who knows what is becomes important. So HR and, and finance typically very quickly, I, I support that. I think when you get down to the next level, specifically in engineering and the science space, I think there's way too many folks who don't have enough experience to know what they're doing in terms of how quickly they're crushing right. innovation. and and it's hard to see sometimes. I mean, it depends where you come out of engineering. Yeah. You come out of field services, you come from a research institution. And I don't think there's any right answer there. But but what I would say, what I do see works well is some level of recognizing we bought this company for a value. Let's let the engineering teams in the, and let's say the mothership, I'll keep calling it the mothership, mm-hmm. get some experience with that tech. Right. Under, and you will find usually a, a great balance of floating some people across yeah. into that company for the right reasons, right? Not to be there to, to be right. knuckle whacker, the, the dictator, and yeah. push everything. Yeah, down. and I, yeah. I've I've done that a number of times. We bought a technology from when I was with General Electric in the clean coal gasification space here in Houston, and Exxon and Chevron were just kind of coming together. And Chevron said, "Look, you can take this technology." And we thought clean coal was going to be the thing at the time. Natural gas was fifteen dollars a right. BTU, right? And so fracking wasn't uh, even in the conversation at that time, and so. General Electric having gas and steam turbines recognized if we could decarbonize coal right. and at the coal's price point as a fuel, and we could use that uh, syngas to turn gas turbines, we had a solution that would be unique in the market. When I came down, 
I really, I, I inherited like five or six chemical engineers. And, um, and what's interesting about that was those chemical engineers really had never made anything. Right. They'd done heat mass balances. They understood the, the petrochemical processes, but they hadn't made anything. Yeah. And General Electric came in as a company that makes things, right? right? Big, heavy right. things. Anyway, we, one of the things we had to go do was a, a syngas cooler and a syngas reactor. And, and I remember bringing in people from GE Research. Uh, I brought a lot of young engineers in. That's a risk. So I brought in professors right. to coach them. Uh, and the topic very quickly became, how do we create algorithms for all of this empirical stuff that we've been doing for years that, that tells us we understand what's going to come out of the other end of the, right. the cooler after the reaction. But, but what do we have to do to design a cooler? Yeah. And the first strike at this thing was something the size of a Statue of Liberty that cost $50 million a piece. <laughs> and we all just looked at each other and said, is that what we have to do? And, uh, you know, but that's a long story. But ultimately- <laughs> I can like envision this in my yeah, head, right? Like, yeah. hey, you gave the engineers yeah. the constraints and- the problem and they solved it. Yep. They, they didn't pay attention to the budget or the feasibility of that correct solution. The but. first time, Pat. So, and, and this was going back to your startup piece. That to me worked because yeah. we brought in people that weren't just General Electric people. Right. And if we did, some of them went from the research center. So they were a little bit more open to experimenting and right. remodeling right. or whatever it might be. But I thought, you know, where you come in and you don't recognize people and culture, it's, a, it's obviously a catastrophe. And and those integration leaders are often, unfortunately, some companies pick people who are just ripe for a promotion right. versus somebody who's ripe for the hard work because it's it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's like any other startup, right? So anyway, I, I think those are those are lessons learned for me. And and uh, but I you know I'm not shy. Ansys Ansys today buys. You know we were really a fifty million a fifty year old company, and we were about a billion dollars maybe five eight years ago. We're about just over two billion dollar company today. And we do a lot of acquisitions in the software space. And typically, you know, we've done some in material science. We've done some in systems optimizations that are agnostic to any tool that you right. might be using. Um, but what's really exciting is we typically recognize that it's a niche, right? It may be very, very, it may be 10 physicists right. who have figured out a new way to model the tear of material, yeah. right? The cracking of it. And so that particular science is so valuable and so important in so many industries. We can provide that algorithm of right. a place to a home that allows them to scale that business. Uh, and at the same time, we know what the value of that predictive right. crack is yeah. in so many industries. So I think with Ansys, we, we typically, uh, we acquire about one company a quarter in, wow. in this acquisition space. And it's all in physics most yeah. most often. We do a little platforming, but not really much. We we, we do platforming where it makes sense for computational right, solutions. Right. But in those cases, and, and I've been you know connected to a few of those. Uh, you know, we we always stew around whether it should be a partnership. Right. Is it you know is it something we need to be you know ownership of, or is it something that could just be a partnership with us? And that then leads us to leaving those people where they are right. and doing what they're doing. And putting a very, very limited amount of, and again, mostly finance and HR, mm -hmm. HR kind of, I won't say auditing, but compliance and that kind of thing. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. Like when you break it down like that, right? Like people would be like, why is this billion dollar company buying these like super niche kind of focused things? But yeah. to your point, right? Like 
metal cracking or materials cracking literally applies to every correct <laughs> industry corrosion from, yeah yeah cor- yeah corrosion's another one right like there's all these universalities that like yes it's a very small subset of every single market but right. it's of every single market <laughs> therefore it has broad appeal Absolutely. and applicability instead of hyper focusing on one niche that is only that thing right and then being like well how do we grow this Right, like not having that visionary kind of sure. mentality of like, sure. hey, this is not only applicable here because that happens all of the time, right? Correct. Across industry, right. where it's like, hey, we've got this really cool thing, we're going to go to market, and we're going to build this company around it, and it's like you and you can do that, but you can also, like, if you really want to build a huge company, understanding where those things apply outside of Correct. your expertise or industry Correct. can be a, such a huge. Well, it's a value multiplier yeah. too, right? I mean, because if, if you're looking in one sector and you don't have access to these other sectors, you're, you're, in, you're in fact um, not getting yeah. the scale quick enough. And, and ultimately, sometimes that's what kills these startups. But the other thing, I mean, just not to be too salesy, but what I was rem, you know just remarked at um, when I joined Ansys, you know, 93% customer approval rating. Yeah. And on the top 10 list of companies most like to work for in the United right. States, it's really not that difficult to find people that want to come work right. for you. Right? That culture is a winning culture, but it's also a culture where uh, our employees are very, very, I mean, it's very flat. Our CEO is very accessible, remarkably bright uh, man, of course, as you would expect. Um, but what's what's really nice is the there's a, a lack of, I would say, politics. Right. And, you know, having been in mostly heavy industrial businesses for, I would say, let's say 28 of my 33, 34 years, um, working in a data software-ish, although most of our company is physicists or mm-hmm. scientists right. uh, before they're software engineers. Uh, but in that space, it's really, the, the, the whole place is curious yeah, all the time. The level of questioning and asking and learning uh, I, I've never had a role in all these big companies where, where I would have thousands of employees. Today, I have none. And I am learning at a rate right. like I was in college. Yeah, And I think, you know, depending, and again, this is kind of important too, because a lot of the companies we acquire in our space aren't pure software right. companies. And they are physicists. So they find a home here pretty quick. And I think, you know, any, any M&A activity, you've got to make sure that culture piece. Yeah, If it's not the same, how is it different? And right. let's talk about it. Let's right. make sure that's on the table. No, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I've worked, I've worked with a number of companies, whether it was overseas developers or uh, I worked for a French company for a while um, that did actually basin modeling, which is another. Okay. That's the only uh, simulation professional experience that I have. Okay. But outside of all the stuff, you know, I did in undergrad with all my SolidWorks and 3D modeling stuff. But uh even that, right? Like within the same company, just cultural differences from True. geo, you know, uh, from their their locations can be like a crazy thing. No yeah. less. Okay, now we have that within the company that we're buying, and now we're having to figure that out and our company's culture on top of that kind of scenario. So it's it's a huge thing, right? Like even to like down to you know certain countries, just generally speaking. Not that I want to make any generalizations, but like you know super and even with the personality types right like engineers like really highly technical engineers tend to be hard to get like information like concise information out just like me right now babbling on uh we we are not very concise right Mm -hmm. like and so being able to understand like the personality type and how they communicate and how to extract that information that you're trying to get out of them is is a huge factor and whether they have you know like 
a lot of developers I've worked with historically hard to get emotion out of some of them right yeah. and you're like i have no idea if this person likes me or hates me <laughs> right? like just completely impossible to read in in some situations but that culture piece i completely agree with you is like the foundation of a lot of that m a and even yeah. partnerships right yeah. like just being able to make that that work because if it doesn't it just just innovation in general yeah right? if you just talk about innovation people like to talk about diversity and i'm, I'm very i'm a you know supporter of diverse workforces but i i my my slant on that from from experience is if you have a diverse workforce but they're not connected to each other right who cares yeah there's no value but what i've what i've seen is when you have a global workforce and you do have differences of culture and behavior in terms of how people work and like to work um you can actually use that as a multiplier yeah and i used the example earlier the white space between functions i mean i can't say this enough i go into companies and your engineering and manufacturing folks, you know, the engineering leaders sitting over here and the manufacturing, I mean, those desks should be put together. Right. And, and even inside engineering. Mm -hmm. So when you go inside engineering, you know, I, I tell people today, I think multi-physics simulation is being limited by organizational structure. Yeah. And people look at me, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you got a mechanical engineer that's working on this problem. And I, I'll give you an example. I won't tell what company, but we were working on an, an oxygen sensor. And uh, we already had flow sensing and so forth, but we wanted to make it more accurate. And ultimately migrated to a hydrogen sensing, which is pretty small stuff, hydrogen. So you've got to, yeah. you've got to have the sensitivity. We had never run a multi-physics model of the flow of, uh, you know, using computational flow dynamics with the electromagnetic field that was being created by the power supply. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the reason we hadn't done it is, first of all, we weren't a simulation first culture in that particular part of the business right. yet. But when I asked the folks, listen, before you go do any experiments, I want to see a model that basically describes how this system works. Our physicists, not mechanical engineers, quickly realized, oh, wait, wait, we're getting an interference here right. from the electromagnetic field. Long story short, the sensor turns out to be orders of magnitude better in the first pass because we've taken two different engineering disciplines, not forced them together, but recognized right. in the real world, Physics doesn't care that you're a mechanical electrical engineer, <laughs> yeah. right? These things don't separate themselves. We may try to from a, from a system standpoint. Right. But anyway, I find that's true too in innovation. And I think one of the things that kind of a pet peeve of mine is, is early, I would say 2015 onward. And I again, I don't know which consultancy company, I'm pretty sure I know, but <laughs> yeah. started talking about blueprints. And everywhere I'd go from Baker to BP and back to GE, everybody wanted to start to decentralize engineering. Yep. And, and um, I, I had this conversation with a number of the CEOs I had at the time. I said, would you decentralize finance? <laughs> and and the, the, they would say, well, no, 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 we, we, I, really? Okay, because yeah. everybody turns in a different spreadsheet on Friday, the closing day. How are you going to put all that together? Right. So, of course, you wouldn't. But engineering, when you break it up into bits, small bits, right? You take this one brilliant material scientist, and you, he's over there, let's say, in Germany, and you've got – a group here in the U.S. that's working on high-temperature electronics for downhole tools. Right. Why aren't they talking? Right. Well, because uh, he works for this guy and he works for this guy. It's, just, <laughs> it's amazing how innovation is stifled by poor leadership. Yeah. And I, I sit with a lot of CTOs just because Ansys has that reach. I mean, we've got 45,000 or more customers around the world and almost anybody that makes anything right. is using. We're about 50% of the world's simulation market. And so when I sit with these CTOs, I ask them really basic questions. And it's not, look, if you're really good in digital, you're going to want to use simulation. It's not really that. It's what are your aspirations for innovation, your engineering workflows, how your engineers, what they do, how they think, how they behave. How do you want to accelerate that pace right. with digital? And, you know, 
it surprises me sometimes that you'll get a CTO who really has no strategy. They may have a thousand, two thousand, three more, more engineers, and they really don't have a strategy. And they want to go, they want to chase productivity because that makes sense. And so I learn a lot from the different folks I meet with, and Ansys and I, we all try to kind of help as an advisor with 93% customer. Mm -hmm. we're, we're kind of partners with yeah. almost everybody that we work with. And we guard their information and their data very carefully. But ultimately, we, we think we help them innovate uh, better if we can partner with them in terms right. of getting more engineers on the table working together. I don't, regardless of work structures, you know, and, uh, but work structures kind of can, can be a problem, just no, like an sure. M&A. No, I mean, that's, uh, that's probably one of my biggest complaints about the oil and gas side of it, mm -hmm. like out of the gate, right? To your point, you've got some of the most highly technical engineering staff in the world working at these companies. Mm, correct. And then it's like, oh, well, there's the R&D group over here. So reservoir engineers over here. Also, if you're a reservoir engineer, now we're going to split you up by basin because surely there are no lessons that we can learn right. from other basins right. or other fields and that we're right. working in as well. Also, production engineers, we're going to do the same thing with you. Completion, you're going to be over here. And drilling, you're going to be over here. And it's like, this is all part of the same product, which is an, right. a well, right. which is all tied to revenue, which is the oil coming out of that well. So the faster the oil comes out of that well, the faster we get a return on our investment and the faster we can keep moving down the line. And yet that's, that is such like a novel concept to most operators. And I think a lot of it comes from like the disconnect going back to our earlier conversation, right? Like when I was an industrial in, as an intern doing industrial engineering and manufacturing and everybody's focused on the problem, like you wouldn't go build a, a widget and go sit it on the shelf for nine months and then go sell it. Like that's mm -hmm. a very hard business plan mm -hmm. and model. And that's exactly what we do in oil and gas yeah. where it's like, we go acquire an asset. Okay. We come up with all these plans and engineering and then we drill it. And then by the time it starts producing, it's nine months later, mm -hmm. all of the money is up, you know, due upfront right. and super expensive, super risk, mm -hmm. all, you know, all these things. And then hopefully we'll make money on it yeah. at the end. It's like, if you can accelerate the time to revenue, you accelerate Correct. your ROI. <laughs> like it's basic, Correct. you know, basic math and, and just And no, business, and no one right? steps on the gas when they're right. lost. So right. if you're lost and you, 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 you feel your risk, and I, I say this a lot, but, but ultimately, you know, I won't drive five miles in Houston. I won't even drive out of my neighborhood without putting ways on. Yeah. And yet... Well, I can be in parts of the world, and, and everybody agrees. Okay, well, that's interesting. Well, that's a model, guys. That's mm -hmm. a model. It's pretty accurate. I mean, it had me here within 30 seconds, essentially, uh, of when I left my house, you know, 30 miles away through traffic and, you know, ex accidents and toll booths. And so people believe confidently in those kinds of models to go <laughs> right. base their, you know, stepping on the gas. I find it, it's just remarkable. We have big customers, um, good customers like uh, Cummins, a good customer of ours that, that I can speak to, that, that uh, is their CTO is simulation first. Yep. And whether it's simulation first or we're going to do systems engineering or whatever that's going to be, having what I find the hybrid organization that works really well is having a few people at a center of excellence, not a lot of people, because right. that can become a more of a researchy kind of, you know, we're just going off and studying on ABLE. When, when in fact, what we want to do is we still solve a problem and we want to be in directionally doing this. Yeah. But if you don't have, if you want to put all your engineering leaders under business unit leaders, some of which are not technical at all, yeah. and you want to call yourself a technology company, and that business unit leader 
really can't follow over a soap box right. and understand the difference between soap and acid, uh, then you then you probably have the wrong structure. And, yep. and ultimately, it's it's not that it will necessarily fail. It's the things you just described, but it's suboptimized. Right. I mean, it's people suboptimized. And this is your most in most technical companies. This is the most valuable yep. group you've got in the room, and not allowing them. I mean, we we'll, we'll have this discussion about well, should we? you know, get the chief engineers together once a year. Well, it's too expensive. And I'm like, hey, what are you talking about? The finance guys just got back and I just did a three right. session with ice sculptures out there, wherever it was. Yeah. And, and, oh, well, of course they did because we got to make our numbers. <laughs> You've got to make your products work if you yeah. want to make your numbers. Right? So I, I always find engineering in, in unfortunately or fortunately, and I'm, I don't want to be too outspoken about it, but, but I think engineering leaders, and one, one CEO told me this. He said, look, engineering leaders need to push back more. And yeah. that's a fair... That's a fair, in fact, I'll share it with you because I have a lot of respect from Lorenzo uh, Samanelli, who runs Baker Hughes. Yeah. You know, you technical guys got it. You got to see at the table, use it, right? I mean, right. and so I think, you know, we, even if you have a group that doesn't know that, it's your job as a technical leader to say, look, we have to have right. this. We have to, do, we have to do it this way or we need to be organized in a way that allows us to share. Yeah. And if that means you can do it because the business unit leaders are all lined up around the fact that technology is going to get together one afternoon on a Friday, have a few pizzas and look at technology together and then you you can make it work yeah yeah they don't have to be restructured but uh i find that to be globally industry independent the biggest thwart to innovation yeah, yeah. no i mean it makes yeah. it makes a ton of sense too and like you see it on the software side you see it in so many of these different fields right where it's like oh well you know we'll have we'll hire a developer to do it and it's like okay well if you're deploying an enterprise ready software product you need a backend developer, you need an architect, you need mm -hmm. a front end developer, you probably need a database guy. You, you like there's all these right. specialties that follow on or that fall under that. And it's the exact same thing with engineering. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, no one, not many people think about it that way, where mm -hmm. it's like, hey, just because you're a petroleum engineer and I'm a mechanical engineer, that's actually a good thing if we're working together because we bring completely different Correct. perspectives to the problem right. that will make it better because we're not thinking in the same box. Yeah. And like that's another big issue, right? But is that's like, diversity, right? Yeah. I mean, that, and that's that's where and I and I do think you know gender falls in that and other things fall in that too because people think differently. Yeah. They come from, but it's a zipto thing to me. Um, and and if people are from one area of the country and have gone to these yeah. types of schools, then uh, you mix them, you mix yeah. them up a little bit, and you mix the scientists. And uh, there's a good book. Um, I'm going to forget the name. It's IDO is the name of the company, and the, the writer, it, it, amazing story about how he was doing innovation, and, and I. And, it's called the Innovation Handbook or something. I'll have to give it to you later. Uh, but it's the company is a San Francisco-based company, IDO, and these guys had come out of uh, uh, Stanford Design School. And again, independent of whatever industry you were in, they gave examples of where when they would want to figure out why people have stopped fishing for the fishing reel company, right. um, you know, they were all going down. They tell, they tell the story in the book. They're all they, they take their scientist, their engineer. They're fishermen, they're psychologists, and they put that team together because they wanted this kind of very right. different kind of thing. And they sent them down to the lake to watch people fish. Mm -hmm. And it was a psychiatrist about 30 minutes in. He said, wait a minute, this isn't where the problem is. These guys are already fishing. Right. We need to go find out why people aren't fishing. We need to go to Walmart and see where they sell this stuff. And, right. and, and so that diversity of thinking, to your point, is really exciting. Because yeah. a lot of times what we would do is if we had a good idea, and we kind of quarterly look at it and say, geez, you know, this is, this is something we ought to put a patent on. It's that good. We would say, okay, well, wait a minute. If we think it's a good idea now, right. let's take the four guys that came up with the idea. Let's put them in a room with 
a whole bunch of pizza and a bunch of other disciplines and let them go after this and ring fence this to make a better patent. Yep. Because if it doesn't cost you more to have a crappy patent than right. a good one, right? I mean, you're still <laughs> going to pay lawyers and all these guys to go do the work. So that was one of those things, again, where diversity was critically important to getting not a couple of guys that look like me going, that's an answer. Right. Let's go with it. And, and actually, ANSYS leverages that today because with simulation, you're able to put a bunch of different variables right. and run a number of, not, not one solution and done, but I can run thousands, tens of thousands of, of iterations parametrically right. on this design or that design. And you can have different people in the team Correct. too because Correct. they have different assumptions Correct. or inputs and all and that stuff. And it costs right? cost you very little. Right. You're not building a physical model. It's not taking you a, 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 a test cell. You're not building breaking. You're not testing and tweaking. You're going in knowing this, it's this one or this one right. are 10 times better than the, the other 50. Which one is going to win? Well, this might be a little bit more expensive. This might be a little bit more liable. Let's see how those right. things play out, right? That's a much more intelligent conversation, and uh, it brings more people in the room. Yeah. Yeah. I remembered the name of the, the book I was talking about. Oh, it's yeah. called Innovate, Innovator's Dilemma. You made me think oh, about yeah, it when you that. said yeah, Innovator's yeah, Handbook. Yeah. Uh, I knew it would happen. That's just- That's okay. John, I'm, glad you, I'm glad it came back. <laughs> um, no, I, I completely agree, because that's, you know, like- Frack interference is a big mm -hmm. kind of trend Absolutely. In, the, in the oil and gas space. And I mentioned to you at one point, the longest I've ever worked at any company, actually, uh, I was working for this gauge company. And right when I started, um, there was a lot of work. People were monitoring, you know, it was mm -hmm. beginning of kind of frack interference monitoring, right? So right. people throwing pressure gauges on these offset mm -hmm. wells and just monitoring the pressure to see if they saw any pressure increases right. from the offsets. And, uh, I'm sitting there thinking as a mechanical engineer, I'm like, I remember all the stress and strain and the brittle net, like all of that mm. mechanical failure stuff yeah. from undergrad. And then I'm sitting here thinking like, how, why has no one backed out? Like, like this is basic physics. Yeah, it's sure. a distributed load. I've got a well bore. It is got this much feet exposed to the, the rock itself in this cluster with this many perfs. I am putting this much force on that. Yeah. Yeah. Length of the well over here. I've got a microphone over here essentially. And I know the distance between mm -hmm. them. So I should be able it's a it's velocity and except like it's just basic yeah. calculus, right? Yeah. And I'm like, this is like physics one stuff that I did in undergrad. And yet yeah. no one in the oil field is thinking about it in that way at all because yeah. they're so in the weeds of, well, you know, the rock is heterogeneous and it changes and all that stuff. And it's like at the end of the day, all the models don't care because it's Nana Darcy rock. Anyway, it's just yeah. a brittle piece of yeah. rock, regardless of how heterogeneous it is or not. Like that's the other part of a lot of engineers, right? Is like they get so in the weeds of it sure. that they can't back out and be like, "Hey, yeah, their or their hardnesses or their brittleness or is slightly different." Yeah, you know, they're but not the model, the accuracy, right? right? So there's a difference yeah, between the <laughs> right the difference between discovery and you know I don't want to fall off this bridge and versus okay I want to make it across the bridge in 20 minutes. Those mm -hmm. are very different objectives. But I think to your point, especially in material science, what we try to do is we, we work at, you know, sort of the micro scale very, very accurately, meso scale, and then sort of the macro scale in these problems. And maybe you come up with an equivalency based upon you've done a couple of tests and that that basin, you've characterized that material by doing just what you said right. back into it. We actually did that in my Oklahoma lab uh, with Baker Hughes a few years back. And we started working commercially with customers and say, listen, yeah. this I wouldn't put it there. Right. I would move it, you know, yeah. right, left, and 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 effectively over time demonstrated, hey, this is a pretty dang good tool. Mm -hmm. This this is giving us very quick runs, very quick uh, what if scenarios, 
And uh, to your point, the level of accuracy was more than good enough right. to make a dent yep. in something that was getting no help that right. way. Well, and it didn't have to be yeah. from like a reservoir model that had right. every single piece right. of rock That's right. per perfectly right. mapped and all of right. that stuff, right? Like right. it's a block. It yeah. has these general properties. You put a force on it and yeah. you can see the response over right. here after whatever, right? And that's so that, what we that's what we call physics informed. Yeah. And and we find, you know, a, a lot of times folks say, well, we're going to do big data. And I, and I said, look, you know, first of all, you have to know the subject to know what mm -hmm. data to collect. And I've heard many AI folks, the minute they lose credibility with me and anybody who is an OEM is when they said, oh, no, no, we, we just need enough data. Yeah. And, and the reality is these models are learning from failure. Yep. And you and I are not accepting failure at 32,000 feet. No. I'm sure they're not interested in, in being part of that experiment. And so, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we, we, what we think is, we know and we demonstrated is that you can, you know, most of the physics, mm -hmm. there is a couple of variables or even constants to those right. variables. And where you might have the problem is, uh, you know, in the nonlinearities, that's typically where your error, whether it's an experiment that you're doing or a simulation you're doing. So that's engineering know-how applied to a problem, recognizing that, you know, I, and I, was, I was sitting here at the nuclear uh, summit, ARPA-E had one on nuclear heat. So using uh, small modular reactors and or fusion for heat for cement, steel, refineries, and so forth, all these applications. And I'm sitting in the back of the room and I hear one of the, you know, nuclear is very conservative, but these folks are using a lot of simulation, mm -hmm. a lot, a lot of simulation. And I'm hearing somebody in one of the EPCs kind of say, well, you know, we're going to scale up this heat exchanger five times. And nobody in the room blinked. And I said, and I, I wanted to get up in the back. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a kid's show, so I don't want to, you know, be using an expletive. But I want to say, go, go what don't we know yeah. about the physics on a heat exchanger right. for gas-to-gas -gas exchange? I mean, what, what are we – now, if you're trying to – I don't know what you'd be trying to study. I mean, you want to study material science and corrosion? We can go there too. But I, I find that to be ridiculous. And not only is it going to be expensive and time consuming, but it's the lack of understanding that these methodologies have evolved. Right. They're sitting on platforms. They're running 10,000 times faster computation fluid dynamics today in many applications, whether it's combustion or aerodynamics, from where they were 10 years ago. So if you haven't touched some of those new methodologies, you're not going to get there fast enough. And I think, you know, one of the things I see is organizationally, that can be a stump too. Right. If you, if you think about it, if you've broken up the, all those engineers and all those groups and they're not talking and some guy over in the corner figures out you can do it this way better yep. and doesn't share it with everybody yep. else, that idea goes from an interesting idea to not scalable. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, uh, I, the, my favorite companies to work with in the, in the inner, or at least in the upstream space is, uh, generally speaking tend to be the companies that have some kind of innovate it's and it's not an innovation like how can we bring outside tech in it's an internal innovation mm -hmm. group that is focused on optimizing best practices from across all of the assets yeah and that's how like that makes so much sense yeah. right like hey these guys why why is you know the eagleford faster at our frack turnarounds and has less mpt than the permian mm -hmm. like that's it's so basic and yeah. again it's like back to this industrial yeah. engineering mindset of like optimize everything and as you optimize, distribute the learnings of that sure. across the organization. Sure. What a novel concept. I mean, like, listen, nine-tenths of the safety you get in the aviation space is because people have a checklist, mm -hmm. a common checklist. Oh, <laughs> you forgot to close the door. Right. Or oh, you forgot to fill the tank. And it irritates people on a, when you're on a plane because you hear them say, well, you know, we got a little something with the fuel gauge and tapping it doesn't seem to fix mm -hmm. it. And I remember being on a flight from Boston to, I don't know where it was, maybe it was Pittsburgh. 
And you know, the person behind me is like, "Well, let's go anyway." And I'm like, "Are you serious?" I mean, so so at the end of the day, did you come from? of all the places to, Stop to have that, that one drinks, right? Yeah. I mean, but at the end of the day, right? Standard work, best practices, lean principles. Mm-hmm. The, these are fundamental, and I call them management. Yeah, I mean, you you can say, "Well, I don't," you know, "I'm not." I well, know enough to hire some of those people and make sure you're spreading them around the organization because if you're not. You, yep. you are absolutely not capitalizing on the scale opportunity. And that's what big companies should do well. Right. 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 Yeah. That's yeah. their differentiator, right? Yep. They don't have the new innovative thing. They've got the scalability. Correct. And, and distribution. Well, should. Right. Yeah. 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 And resources. Yeah. Right. right. Well, so tell me, tell me a little bit more about, you know, kind of ANSYS and some of the tools you guys have that fit in kind of the energy space and, sure. and how people use them, success stories, failures, et cetera. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, so from wind I mean, it was kind of the yeah. talk with the energy space so when i think of the energy space and i have to correct people my own team sometime um it's everything from upstream midstream downstream it's inclusive of the oems mm-hmm. the gas turbines wind turbines steam turbines whatever it might be that's rotating uh or the solar cell or whatever and and now that is including things like storage and batteries and so forth so when i think of energy systems um an integrated energy system all the way down to the electronics too all right? the way down like, to the circuit board, yeah right so you know, where our, our tools are being used. And I, you think about high temperature electronics for downhole drilling. I mean, yep. uh, all of our tools, we are, we are best in class in the semi space. And we'd probably surprise folks that even with a few customers in the semi space, and you and I were talking a little bit about this without getting into, you know, calling people out because yeah. it's, it is what it is. Um, but because we are 50% of the simulation market, we kind of have a view of where companies are. And in the, in, 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 you can digest this one for a second. The largest energy customer, not including the Department of Energy, the largest energy customer usage of simulation, hang on to your hats, is one thirtieth the size of an average company in semiconductor that's using our product or aerospace. Right. One thirtieth the spend. And we go in many times, and where I'm talking to somebody across the table who's going to go do a bunch of experiments, they're going to spend 10, 20, 30 million dollars, and they've convinced their boss that's the way. Oh, of course, we're going to go spend 20. We have to spend the money on testing. Right. And when we come in and say, look, it's going to be, you know, half a million dollars in software and somebody swallows hard, I look at the cross table and I just, oh my God, you folks, you know, you're decades behind. Yep. So, you know, in the energy space, we provide products uh, from that are used in all those other industries right. too, right? So computational fluid dynamics that you would use for everything from drilling mud mm-hmm. uh, to applications in biogas. Right. Um, bioalgae. I was going to say any kind of fluid flow, right? Anywhere you want to optimize heat. You know, so I just look, we were just looking at a project the other day where we're using um, what we've done in modeling of an aircraft, sub 77, and run, run it into the side of a nuclear reactor that's being proposed uh, as a, you know, as an anti terrorist. Mm-hmm. Right. So here you got two different industries. Very, when did you ever think those two would meet, right? right? So on this application uh, through regulatory, people were trying to do certification of uh, integrity through accidents. Mm-hmm. And so a combination of models and space that really uh, is interesting. In the energy space, we use those same technologies. So I talked to you a little bit earlier about crash testing, which is not eliminated in the auto industry, but great, great, greatly reduced. Um, And now they do all of that. And there's some great stuff on YouTube where we do it with Legos for kids. It's really fun to watch. That's awesome. I'm going to have to look at that. Yeah, yeah. We take a Lego Bugatti and run it into the side of a Lego Ferrari. (laughs) And uh, and, my four-year-old's going to love that. Oh, yeah. Well, all these little discreet (laughs) Legos go flying around, right? And we have the actual in the video. It's it's quite cool. But but that's being used. And and now in the energy space, because what if I have a hydrogen car uh, on a rail car? What happens when that, do I have a cast track failure? Um, What do I do to contain batteries? 
uh, yeah. structurally, right? So in, in the oil and gas space, we sit uh, with a lot of the sensor development. Um, we do computational fluid dynamics with some of uh, the customers I've talked about before, working with some of the majors to look at what do we do on emissions mitigation. Right. So greenhouse gas or methane or flare optimization. Um, Hydrogen embrittlement, right? What are we doing in terms of at the macro? We talked a little bit about materials, macro, micro, and meso scale to recognize time, temperature, and, and constituency of hydrogen, how we think this storage tank pipeline. Right. Because historically, you know, we're working with the lowest carbon solution out there in oil and gas. Most of the pipelines, 90% of them are, are low carbon uh, solutions. So bringing these tools to, to basically simulate uh, any aspect in yeah. the energy space. You can just imagine electromagnetics, uh, antenna, even even 5G antenna interference out on a rig. Yeah. Uh, so technologies, as you said earlier, that show up in other industries, show up in this industry for sure, even if we're not the first adopters. Uh, we work with a company, this is kind of cool. We work with a Flare. A Flare is a Teledyne mm -hmm. company to do thermal cameras yeah. out on the West Coast. I was out with their CTO a few weeks back, brilliant guy. and. Their product is, is being used on cars and trains Everywhere. and play and offshore because people are able to use to, that to signal some level of corrosion, mm -hmm. actually. And so anyway, long story short, these guys have embedded their application in our libraries. So if you're, if you're right. one of these companies that wants to put a thermal care, camera in and they're a market leading technology, you now not only have the physics, but you don't have to go do the simulation. Right. They've already done it for you. And now you can do a systems level integration of that thermal camera into your solution at a much higher level right. of fidelity. Without yeah. having to do anything from scratch Correct. on your own. Correct. Like and why should in you? In labs. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's that's the, uh, like I, we've been talking about it since you got here, but you know, the, the cross learnings from other industries, especially those like aerospace and automotive mm -hmm. and industrial manufacturing who have incredible right. standards for these things, mm -hmm. who are literally maybe take automotive out because we all know lots of things on cars are designed to fail after the warranty but mm -hmm. uh course, yeah. you know for automotive and, and manufacturing Rightly things so. are designed to last and yeah. be as robust as they mm -hmm. possibly can for as long as they possibly mm -hmm. can because that's where all your money ends up yeah. right? it's all the capex spent into that equipment that runs the entire operation that makes you money which sounds a lot like the oil field right where you've right. got all this heavy equipment and these remote locations and milling over with no resources and all this stuff and then it's like yeah, but they're still doing you know non-destructive testing in a lab somewhere without a, any kind of simulations on it. Or it's right. like, yay, we've got this new downhole, you know, tool gauge, cluster, perf gun, whatever, and but we're trying to we have to go test it in a lab, yeah. and it's like, why don't you simulate that? Or like, Correct. you know, even on Correct. a on a drilling site or a frac site or anything like that, right? Like you have to turn your phones into airplane mode because of the radio interference yeah. and stuff with all the the charges and stuff on a perf gun. Why aren't we modeling those things? Right. Like if you've got a perf gun that you're worried about, instead of having to do destructive physical testing with that, simulate it. <laughs> and I was like, seeing the same thing with wind farms, right? What's yep. your electro electromagnetic interference with radar with with uh, wind farms? And so these technologies play across multiple industries, which interestingly enough, I mean, one of the tools that we have is called SCADE. Um, and it was a French acquisition about a decade ago that we made. And they were deep in the French nuclear industry. Now, the French are out there ahead of everybody else in nuclear. They just mm -hmm. have been doing it longer and they have standardized designs, which have made it much safer. Right. And if you get trained in one, you can work on another one. Brilliant yeah. idea. <laughs> We've made them all uniquely different. It's right? The Southwest so, model. Right? Yeah, it's like the steering wheel this yep. time is in the back. Yep. I mean, so, you know, you, the, the training for, anyway. So that makes it more difficult. So we 
this software company uh, basically had developed a certifiable logic that you could tie together if then kind of control mm -hmm. very for very important safety systems right, right? we want to keep the code clean and simple industrial control system type industrial control stuff, system yeah. right and it is the standard for aerospace uses it and then the standard for nuclear as well which is embedded software that we have used this tool for that gives you a certified to standard uh, for that industry Interesting. code so after you're done with the the kind of the modeling and a, a bunch of what ifs and optimization and so forth then it will drop you the certified code that could be used in any industry, healthcare right. and right. so forth and so on. So I, th I think there's some places what happens is just like the startups that we acquire, they may be focused in one particular industry. We, we've got this technology that's really cool. You've heard of the DART mission. Yeah. Right. And so first time we knocked a celestial body out, uh, ANSYS was behind that, that's a lot awesome. of that simulation, right? And that same technology can be applied to the hydrogen car we right. talked about that you want to run into the side of a, uh, or, or a, or a, geothermal drilling right. device that's going to be coming through and pounding through um bedrock so i, I it's what's what's it's almost limitless, limitless yeah. what people can do i think what we see the migration to now is a lot more of that automated workflow where where people are saying listen now that we've done this engineering six times and we have it in the tool right why are we still doing that one why don't we be doing other optimization so so we do we you know and as as far as digital engineering goes we get into that automation space with our partners, like right. you, you mentioned some of the CAD companies. We don't, we're not a CAD company, we're a simulation company. And so that in IoT has made what used to be digital assets that were primarily used for design now fungible enough. Right. Because you're getting real-time data, you can use them to steer your operation. Yep. So you put them out on the edge and you, you make a reduced order model and you're collecting real-time data and you're, you're basically tuning that model to the variables right. that are unique. Yeah. And and what's cool about really what's kind of what's cool about the oil and gas space really what I share back to the folks I talk to in aerospace so I don't beat up on when <laughs> people that beat up on gases, you know by zip code, we talked about you know the geology is different. Aerospace, you know, three miles up is right, right. Five miles up, ten miles up, it gets really simple. I say simple. I'm not saying the systems are simple. Right, the systems and the products are complicated. There's less variables, but there's less variables. Yeah. It's more uniform, it behaves more uniformly. You don't have that volatility. So where we should be used in this industry more is in testing the boundaries of the control volume right. of understanding against the variability. And in, it might be geoscience or it might be offshore wind or offshore platforms, right? Yeah. Rogue waves and hydraulics and all, all this hydrodynamics and so forth. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember in undergrad before I graduated, I think it was, Hal I think it was Halliburton came or maybe it was BP. Somebody came and gave a, you know, presentation or what like a it wasn't during class it was just a side thing but mm. uh on all the simulation that went into like these uh floating offshore platform mm. right and like a deep water platform right where it's sure. truly floating you've got not only is the platform basically just like a you know lunar modular where it's got jets and motors on all mm. sides so that it it can stabilize itself mm -hmm. but then you've got the actual pipe coming from the platform down to the ocean floor that has to deal Correct. with the waves and the current Correct. and all of this stuff and it was just like man and that's the thing that like we always talk about is just energy workforce is got is is some of the most technical and like incredible in my mind because of all of the problems that they face regardless of which side of it it is and yet you still have like you you get all these knobs that get twisted or what you know corporate structures mm. politics etc and then 
yet we still can't solve some of the most like basic issues with some of the things that we have. And it's like, or like, we're not, you know, there's so much rotating equipment in, yeah. in every industry, but no less oil and gas. Yeah. And it's like, Hey, if you're a manufacturer of a compressor, a pump, uh, you know, a turbine, et cetera, a a seal. yeah, literally, or even the circuit board, like you were talking yeah. about, like, why aren't you modeling that? Mm -hmm. Because everyone tries to optimize for costs, especially when prices are low and all that stuff. Sure. But it's like, Hey, if your equipment can last twice as long because you run yeah. all these models and you design it properly, that saves you a ton of money sure. and time because that's the biggest cost in the oil field is time and money. Yeah, well, right? think, like, but think about electronics and a downhole tool. Right? Yep. You've got a bit on the front that's banging right. it's, that it's tool the around. Worst and, conditions in the world for right? most of our equipment. But you have that actuator right there and you're sensing what's going on in the vibration. Did you take that vibration and the circuit? If you, A, did you do the circuit board analysis for the, let's say, the red? the uh, resistivity tool mm -hmm. uh, or uh, the acoustic tool. Did you do the analysis on that circuit board, temperature, right. time, All vibration? PBT stuff, yeah. And then has test against it. Nope. Okay. <laughs> and where did you put it in the tool? Well, well we wrapped it in foam. I didn't ask you if you wrapped it in foam. Yeah. I asked you, where did you put it in the tool? Uh, we put it over here, because that's where we had room for it. Uh-huh. Well, you just put grandma on the end of the diving board, right. okay? I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, at the end of the day, <laughs> you see this mm -hmm. in design, and I, I, I really had the privilege of being so many different products that we, as you and I talked about, it just keeps coming back, yeah. right? It's And it's basic physics in some cases. And why would you not, and the excuse can't be, well, we can't run those systems. No, you can. Yeah, You absolutely can. And when you do, and I've seen us do it with customers who say you can't, and very quickly they become adopters, mm -hmm. Um, but ultimately, too, it may be because the electrical engineer and the mechanical engineer, he, he right. gave me this hole over here to put my stuff in, and that's what I'm going to do. And I, I, I don't know. Yeah. What do I got to say about it? So, you know, I think when you get all those folks in a room and you have a leader that yeah. is willing to let people, and I always, my favorite phrase is, and I, I just adopted it because I travel all the time, you have the freedom to move around the cabin. Yeah. You have got to give engineers and scientists, and I say 10% of their time, not five, not two. Not after hours, not right. You got to give them time to connect. And if you don't, you're intellectually thwarting yeah. that organization, full stop. And people say, you know, I, I, you talk with folks and say, well, no, no, we don't do that. We don't, we, we, you know, engineers aren't, you know, they'll, they'll waste, they'll fritter their time away. And you look at them and I say, you know, why did you hire that person? Mm -hmm. Right. Did you hire them to, to put a, you know, fill a hole with a screw or did you hire these folks to figure out, I don't need the hole or the screw? Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I well, can use glue. That's right? the uh, anyway. The, no, that's yeah. the that's absolutely correct, right? Like yeah. at the core, engine we love to solve problems. It doesn't matter right. what type of problem right. it is. Like yeah. I will spend an inordinate amount of time trying to solve some random ass problem because I am motivated by solving problems yeah. that a normal person would have just quit on. Yeah, you know, five minutes. Well, in, right? Like, it, you want to say something about engineers, which I wrote, and so I'll throw, I want to put all scientists yeah, yeah. in that box too, um, and doctors and anybody that's curious. Um, but what I've found, and I've, I've had the opportunity to lead companies, commercial folks, sales folks, and I've had CEOs say, well, don't you want to go run this business over here? And I look at them and say, no. Yeah. And they said, well, why is that? I said, because I know how to run engineering and science. And the difference in engineering and science, because I have run those other organizations, mm -hmm. is the motivation factor. Right. is very different. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to say engineers don't want to get paid. And I, I think sometimes we, we allow ourselves not to get paid like some of the other folks do. But at the end of the day, the engineering community is a community that can be inspired and motivated and multiplied by the right leadership. Yep. And with these tools can be accelerated and multiplied in productivity and capability in terms of what they can go solve. Right. 
right? And how, how accurate, how quickly. So I, to me, what's exciting, what I really enjoy about this company and, and the kinds of spaces we're in um, is it is uniquely engineering yeah. and science. And I'm not having a conversation about a sales guy, about a spiff or a tiff. Look, I mean, you got to motivate people somehow, right? Yeah. But, the, you know, bonus on this cell and bonus. That, that would, that would exhaust me intellectually, right? And so what's kind of all coming to all these kind of things we've been talking about this morning about the oil and gas space is because we have such a cyclic nature to the mm -hmm. hiring and reducing, we, be, we beat that culture up big yeah. time. It becomes dog eats dog. I'm going to lose my job. I better just do what I'm told and I better stay in this box. And and Bob over there, let's hope he goes before I do. It, it's not mm -hmm. personal, Bob, but yeah. I needed you. <laughs> well, nobody wants to put their name out there on a project that fails and yeah. then they'll never get another project approved, yeah. which yeah. is the complete opposite mentality of, of most other industries. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Like, yeah. and it's, and you know, it, to your point, it a lot of that comes from the cyclout or whatever cyclical nature yeah. of yeah. the industry where it's yeah. like well there's layoff you know yeah. prices are bad layoff just happened or it's coming or whatever yeah. and so it's like i don't want to be the one that gets laid off because i you know stepped outside the box and did something trying to be innovative and save us money that costs sure. us some money because and it and then we scrap the project completely because it costs money even though we didn't see it all the way out to the end to see if there was a different way of yeah. doing it or you know whatever um those are the things like yeah i mean I can't tell you how much, how many times I've been a part, part of projects where, you know, works at small scale on a well, a pad, a field, yeah. whatever. Yeah. But then the minute they go to try and scale it out across either multiple wells or outside of the, the field or whatever, there's some nuance and it doesn't work exactly how it worked in the other one. And then they just scrap it all together. And it's right. like, I, or we just take like yeah. the scientific method and yeah. we keep iterating on this thing, yeah. right? Like, there's so many things there to it, but Which, I, but John, I mean, that's why I ended up with Antis because yeah. of the years I spent at GE Research and, and all these different products at these different companies. There was one common weapon that worked every time, and we, every every leader now it's a new thing. Read a book and say I embrace failure. I have not met a CEO that the next question you should ask is to what extent? Right. How big a box can I fail in? Five dollars? Five hundred dollars? Five hundred thousand dollar box? Is it a failure in time? Right. You certainly don't want to hurt people, right? There's a, once you put all those constraints on it and the engineer who lives by specification sits there and goes, <laughs> so I can fail if I meet all of that criteria? Uh -huh. I don't think so. Yeah. And so what, what's, what's exciting, and I'll use this example because I think it's a phenomenal example of using computational simulation to, to basically radically change an industry. And this was aerospace and it go back about 20 years ago. And everybody, you, you get on a plane today, you look out, what do you see? You see these little winglets. Mm -hmm. And- that those were derived computationally. Yeah. So somebody didn't go out to a 777 and go staple some well, wooded things yeah. on, or even go in a wind tunnel. Well, tell people for those who don't know, you're yeah. talking about the little at the very the tip little of vertical wings that yeah. come up, yeah. right? And yeah. they're on pretty much every plane. Every now. plane. Yeah. Tell people like I yeah. I don't remember the stats. It's five percent reduction in drag, which is ten billion dollars yeah. a year in fuel, depending <laughs> on what the fuel price is, right. right? And because it's at altitude, and I'm somebody's going to correct me on this, but it's somewhere between one and three percent of total greenhouse gas emissions eliminated by that yeah. in terms of effect at altitude by the, by but, another foot by, of by five material. five percent re reduction in drag. Just huge numbers. I, I literally I was with a uh, one of our good cut company called Grunfrost, Denmark company, number one in the water pump space. Water pumps are 10% of the world's electricity. That's insane. 10%, right? Boaters are 45%. They have in two turns of a dial, and, and they'll, they'll I, I'm, I'm going to say it, but they'll, they would say it if you were here. 
it's because of simulation. I mean, they've simulated it as a subcomponent, then they move that to the system level and so forth, and they're vertically integrated, so they have all the parts and all the assembly, right. and they've optimized it. And reality is they've knocked out 80%. That's They've <laughs> improved their efficiency 80% in two turns of the dial. And here's a company, 10% of the world's water's electricity. So think about what that is. I mean, you can measure that. Right. And you know, everybody's getting caught in the axle around what new technologies are we gonna bring? And that, that, that's really important. And we're, we're a part of that. I mean, some of our newest, biggest customers are startups in the energy space. And um, you know, they'll be important 2050 or the end of the, mm -hmm. the century for sure. But in the meantime, efficiency is the winner. Half yeah. a gigaton of CO2, which is what? Uh, 50 gigaton is what we're sitting on. So it's not 10%, but maybe it's give it a 1% greenhouse effect uh, on combustion gas turbines, land-based. So 1% improvement in combustion efficiency before you move to hydrogen yeah. is half a gigaton estimated across the world. So these, this is where our tools are, can be used immediately right. because we're already with a lot of these companies. They're not focused as much on that. They used to not be as focused on that because it was really just a fuel savings. Right. But now they can draw that one level out and get a greenhouse gas emission savings yeah. as you talked about. So you get two wins for the, yeah. the dollar. Well, and that's the other thing too, is it's like, we had that conversation earlier where it's like, oh yeah, it saved 1%. But 1% becomes, you know, at scale. And yeah. that's the thing that a lot of people don't like grasp, especially energy across the board, right? You've got extremely expensive, high risk assets that are, you know, like the, the pricing on those is volatile, like it goes up and down, but then you've got this, uh, like we're seeing it more and more now where you've got this hyper focus on once things get so expensive, you can start really optimizing those efficiencies on them. Or if there's so much pressure from whatever perspective right. of the, right. of the table. And so like I've seen a number of just like waste heat companies mm -hmm. spinning up mm -hmm. whether that be waste heat off of a compressor or mm -hmm. a pump or whatever right. that be right. on site or a full power plant right? right like and that's the crazy part the physics is the same yeah right it's just how much value or efficiency does that bring you and what does that scale right. out to be and so i think that's to me like the future of you know, kind of energy is as you know we we say energy addition not transition because that's kind of where we we sit but we all know that the source of energies is going to change over time, mm -hmm. but I see the near term, there's all this pressure and focus and incentive now, finally, for people to decarbonize, to reduce emissions, mm -hmm. to increase efficiencies. And those are, you know, they, most people think of things like operational efficiencies. So right. how do we spend right. less time doing sure. X or whatever, but then they don't think about it down a layer where it's like, okay, what is the efficiency of my motor? What is the, you know, uh, CO2 emissions of that motor. How do I make that opt? Like start, we, I see my thought is I see the future where near term, we really start gaining a lot of ground on those efficiency metrics. And, right? and we need to, I mean, 65% of the energy produced con converted and or consumed on planet is tossed, mm -hmm. right? I mean, just let that soak. Yeah. 65%. And that's only improved 5% in the last 50 years. Right. So we have then a you compare that to like the compute efficiencies right right, right. That you see on the, there's, on the and there's no reason for it other than what you just described and maybe maybe what's what's kind of interesting about that is if efficiency is looked at at a systems level right i used this example the other day with a, with a customer i said look and we were having a nuclear discussion in the uk and i said look here's the problem with not running an integrated systems model of whatever it is you don't mm -hmm. care if it's an offshore rig whatever it is. if you're bringing equipment in from all of these different OEMs, Cummings, GE, but everybody has to put margin mm -hmm. 
on their components and their systems. And usually they try to get rid of the component level and they put right. it at the system level. And so if this guy's got 5% of margin and this guy's got 5% and 10% and so forth, and I start to load those into a systems model and I sub-optimized around all of those extra margin, you've padded this thing right. and it's cost and it's inefficient because you've sized this part thinking he's going to be 5% less power. Right. And so you've gone ahead and cut the penny and said, look, I'm going to make sure we don't have an ounce more heat exchange than I need because I didn't do a systems level integration of right. these, these assets, right? So I think what I'm seeing is, and this water pump company was a good example of that, is they started with the Impella, that made an improvement, right? And they moved away on, but but in materials, which we, we have an awful lot of software in the material science space, we have uh, a customer I was with in Israel about a month back, just before the, the fighting started, large printer company, and they have these large drums and you would think this is low tech. It's not low tech. These are high resolution images and they're printing out thousands of them very quickly. And uh, they sell these machines all over the world. And I'm sitting with a mechanical engineer who points me to this drum, this large metal drum that's spinning. And he says, look, my boss says, I need to take dematerialize this machine. And so there's two pieces that I want to dematerialize, but I also want to put circularity in so I can recycle, right? But ultimately he looked at me and said, well, what do you think we can do in terms of reduction of weight. Now, I'm just looking at the thing spin, it's gotta be going at least a thousand RPM or more. And the machine starts and stops and starts and stops. And I look at it and Gosh. I said I said to him, I said, um, 65%. And he looked at me and he said, no way. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my paycheck for 50% because I, you know, I'm not gonna do the problem myself. Yeah. But, but ultimately, every time we see people go in that have never done a physics kind of a, that level of analysis at that level, 50%. And you say, okay, that steel that would have had to been shipped, right? Right. That's material that would have had been kiln, yep. mined. And when you start doing the full carbon footprint, I want 50% material. This is why additive is so exciting because you're only putting the material where you need it. Right. Um, and and so when you look at that kind of thing and you see that kind of, I'll call it waste. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't want to offend the company because it's, it, they're a good company. Yeah, yeah. But that kind of waste on the table, you know why we're at 65%. Yep. And we got a long way to go to take the engineering to a level. What people would say is over-engineered, well, that's way over-engineered. Look at all the metal. That's under-engineered mm -hmm. today, right? You don't put more metal in something, you right. don't need to put in more metal. Right. Yeah. That's, it's, it's very true, though, right? Yeah. Like, Because historically speaking, as engineers, we're taught factors of safety, mm -hmm. and you want to over, like Toyota, yeah. right? Yeah. Like Toyota is a huge international brand and major car company because people have faith that it is over-engineered or they mm -hmm. have been historically at least right and so like it's funny because the historical like definition or context of what that means is completely different right. now than it was right. even Ab ten, 10 years ago right? absolutely like, because what you want to do if you haven't done the analysis uh and we do something as simple as these glasses mm -hmm. and recognize that the hinge is the fail point most right. often sometimes it's these little things but most times so if i put more in the hinge and i do that in a calculated way that's engineered. Mm -hmm. And that's not over-engineered. That's right. just engineered properly. If I put more metal anywhere in this and I haven't done the analysis, that's over-engineered mm -hmm. or under-engineered in my opinion. Right. right? So I'm really screwing up with the, the terminology on this, but I do think people need to reflect on that. You know, elevators, they can afford a high uh, level right. of safety, right. but aircraft can't, mm -hmm. frankly. So they have to be engineered because I've got to only afford to lift that metal five times a day and mm -hmm. drop it back down safely. I can't afford... Uh, you know, extra metal. Right. And, you know, we were working on a project one time where we were trying to get one fan blade out. It was 65 pounds and it meant something because you had two engines and that's right. 120 pounds, which is the weight of an average passenger. 
well, not North America anymore. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so it's just kind of an interesting uh, no, thought. I, I get to that system. No, first. for sure. I think that's a, yeah. uh, like I said, I think there's, and to your point, like there's so much that has changed on the material side mm. and the manufacturing mm-hmm. side of those materials, right? Like yeah. printed material, yeah. whether that's metal or plastic mm. now, yeah. to your point, like not only is there no waste, but then you can put things exactly where they need to be without that incremental cost of, you know, uh, honing it on yeah. the, like post manufacturing work. Right. Like, and you, and you see the dance of that laser mm-hmm. melt pool that it's creating. Uh, it's, it's mesmerizing. Yeah, actually. Now they have four lasers, wild. five and eight lasers working at the same time on some of these machines. But what's interesting is we can, we pre-model that. So we have tools to, to pre-model every, you know, 25,000 print layers for thermal distortion and, or, uh, if you, or stress that right. would be induced in the print so you can optimize yeah. the print dance right. to minimize that thermal stress. People aren't using it. Yeah. So they went, well, you know, additive is too expensive. Well, it's too expensive because you're throwing a lot of stuff away because you're not doing a pre-print analysis yeah. and letting the printer decide what orientation uh, to put it at. But where, where I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish. I go on for hours. I won't on additive, but I'll, I'll leave it at this. Um, this is where simulation and math are going to be just incredibly important to mature additive. Additives replacing castings in a lot yep. of ways, right? And we had a machine here at Rankin Road when I was with Baker when I had the additive team where we could print three, four materials at the same. Now they have eight. So you're essentially able to print your own alloys, yeah. right? And and we've been, as ANSYS, we've been buying libraries of these alloys from the different aerospace companies mm-hmm. like a Siemens and a GE and putting them into our library so people can use them uh, where it's not a competitive threat for those. I mean, it's a commercial agreement. But ultimately, what's what's really pretty interesting about that is we started printing graded materials. So think about, th- you know, I remember when I started to design, we had engineers that everything was in 2D. Right. And I just couldn't think in 2D. So I, as a department lead, I said, you're all going to go to 3D. I don't want to hear about it. We're not designing in mm-hmm. 2D. This half a whole stuff not lining up. Yeah. We're done with it. And and so we went. We started using 3D CAD. This is going way back. But anyway, the, the point is uh, you're able to optimize that print on a three-dimensional matrix of materials. So you might, like an M&M. Yeah. I could print it soft in the middle and hard right. on the outside. And right. there is no cladding layer. There's no welded joint. layer. Yeah. There's no joint. There's no. And today when we want to change materials like this cup, we have plastic on the top and paper to bottom. We make two separate parts mm-hmm. so we can do a homogeneous manufacturing. Well, in fact, it's much more efficient in many aerospace applications. If I'm going to combine parts right. to actually be able to change that alloy to be springy at the bottom or hard at the surface. Yeah. And that is going to revel and that that is not going to be done. No engineer is going to be able to think of three-dimensional material <laughs> non-homogeneous you know, it, material science is uh, is already hard, oh, no, hard so enough out of the gate. That was my worst well, subject well, in was undergrad. It, but, well, this will this will this will mature and we're partnering with a company called Materialize and a couple of other companies here. Um we're going to mature this process. And I my 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 brain says we got it in less than 5 years, but um, and maybe it takes a little longer, but ultimately people are trying to certify every part for NACE or who, whatever your governing mm-hmm. body is and whatever industry you're in. And what we really need to do is is certify a smart process. Yeah. And because we've got in-situ measurement right. and it's all digital and it's all tied together, right. there's no reason this machine can't figure out it's screwed up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And tune itself for the next parent. And uh, there's just no excuse for it. And I, I think we can get there. Yeah. And I think that's going to revolutionize additive almost overnight as soon as we can get this kind of workflow work. Because today, your design engineer is going to optimize this cup on strength, temperature, and so forth, what it might be. 
He's not optimizing for manufacturing. He might think he is. Right. But can you imagine if you had a fit for print part and the machine determined and threw another variable into the optimization right. routine after one print learning about temperature or time or, or anything and, and absolutely optimizing the design again yeah. against what would be an optimized print. This is phenomenally, it's fundamentally doable yeah. and will be phenomenally powerful. No, yeah. I think that's, uh, we're running out of time, but sure. so we didn't get to talk about it. But I, yeah. that's one of the things I was going to actually ask about with AI in your space. Since sure. AI is on everybody's yeah. uh, tongue this year, but I, I've already seen some stuff. Um, I don't remember what it was for or what, but it was essentially that, right? Where, you know, they, uh, they had a part, mm -hmm. then they threw it at, they did the model, everything, and then they started essentially letting an AI try and sure. optimize the part by General itself. Generative design. Right? Yep. And, uh, and it optimized a part that looked completely different. And of course, it's got new additive manufacturing mm -hmm. and all the new, like, here's the old part that we designed 20 years ago. What would that look like today? Yeah. Right? And like, the difference is crazy. And then you start getting into the math behind it and like manufacturing time, the cost and all these things. And yeah. Like, Holy shit. This yeah. is it's gonna be crazy <laughs> it is and in our industry oil and gas be a really good candidate for it and what and why baker hadn't been investing in it is because really sometimes you're not selling your product like your downhole tools right and or your wireline tools and you are our, our drill bits we're mm -hmm. able to print those in, in full uh disclosure i mean we disclose that uh publicly through patents and so forth but ultimately um the low volume sometimes unique alloy mm -hmm. i mean this this is a play or a just niche. the manufacturing process right? yeah yeah the manufacturing so it's a niche it's a niche for the auto for the for the oil and gas space for sure and i i, I found it kind of interesting i still ask the question because I'm, I'm super curious but i'll ask a company hey look are you doing anything in additive and very quickly they'll come back with an answer that was probably founded 10 years ago yeah well, you know, it's too expensive or, you know, we make too much volume. And I'm, I'm thinking, I don't, you have no idea what's going on mm -hmm. in healthcare right now. I mean, healthcare is, we're all unique. Our bones are different. Right. I mean, it's just, a, it, this is going to be revolutionary. It already is revolutionizing healthcare and aerospace. And I think, you know, ultimately oil and gas might be a later adopter, uh, but is going to have fundamentally an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it makes a ton of sense, right? Like, yeah. again, oil and, oil and gas, most of the issues are kind of, problems that we run into are stem from the the materials yeah right like yeah got so there's always salt water so corrosion and metal are not yeah. always the big fans of each other and they don't work really well mm -hmm. <laughs> over time and it doesn't mm -hmm. help the the part and all of that stuff and then again you're also moving all of these materials that have whether it's lng cng hydrogen yep. to your point like yep. that change the way the metallurgy is over time mm -hmm. and also change under pressure and temperatures like there's so many little things and again, but again, it sounds complicated because it is because that's always changing. There's always different states, but it is physics and they fit into a PVT sure. model. They all have their own sure. curves and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah. And so, and so many, and somebody modeled yeah. that pipeline right. originally, right. probably, probably yeah. if it was any kind of service at all, you'd want to model it. And so why wouldn't you now have that as a, not as a digital asset right. that's to your point, monitoring all the conditions that are coming over time mm. in that product. And over time I can then project predict not just disclose where i think i'm gonna have a problem but predict that i'm gonna have a corrosion problem right. 10 years out five years yeah. out um so yeah it's it's how do we how do we kind of use and, and iot investments in the last couple of decades have really advanced that mm -hmm. opportunity i think many people are still in a different paradigm believing that this stuff doesn't work and we can't do digital and i mean i, mean, I was in europe a couple of weeks back with a large hydro uh turbine producer and uh their customer 
took our tools, designed and reverse engineered all of the turbines with a third party uh, supplier who did the engineering work to create digital twins on erosion and corro of their of their hydro blades based upon rain and silt right. and all this stuff in the in the lakes. And they've got 130 uh, hydro plants. And you know, I had a customer tell me, yeah, well, you know, the models don't work. And why why are they doing this? Because you have the mindset that the models don't work and they have the IoT connected. Mm -hmm. And so they're just creating a digital asset that you should have given them. If, right. if you wanted to help them uh, get there about a year sooner. But ultimately, we have found the value in that. So these these assets in our energy space, some of them, many of them, dawn well before the dawn of digital. Right. And are being, even nuclear plants around the world are being recast for another 50 years, recertified, whether it's in Paris or the United States. It's the same discussion because we can't afford to have all that base load come mm -hmm. off right now. And so, you know, they're using the tools differently than they did in the past. But if you're not sharpening that knife right. between cuts, you've made a mistake yeah. in the engineered world anyway. No, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, we are, we are out already, which is crazy. I feel like we could sit here and chat all, right, all week, right. but, uh, or all afternoon, but yeah. we're, we'll wrap it up on the, the speed round. So I'll just pepper okay. you some sure. questions, some short, quick answers, a uh, couple books, either on the technology or, um, innovation or product side that you would recommend uh, yeah. some people check out. One of my one of my favorites. Uh, there's a lot of talent books. I won't get into a lot of that discussion, but but certainly on innovation, one of my one of my favorite ones is actually Fast Innovation. And uh, I was talking to somebody the other day, and he put one off his desk. And I used to have my staff read it. It was a good combination of Lean, Six Sigma, and Design. And everybody out there says, "Oh, he's a GA guy. We're going to hear about Six Sigma again." That's not what I'm going to talk about. But ultimately, it's a means of solving a problem and knowing it's solved. Uh, you know. Define, measure, analyze, improve yep. control. It doesn't get any more straightforward. It's really the scientific method, if you would, with with tools and ways to measure your way right. through. This book does a nice job. It was written by a couple of young ladies here in Texas, I think, in the Dallas area. And uh, it is, I bought, I don't know how many versions of that. That's that's a great book. The the Innovation Dilemma, you mentioned that one. Mm -hmm. Crossing the Chasm was another good one. One of, the, one of my favorites, actually, even for engineers, is Jack Stack's Great game of business. And this is an old book. This goes back maybe 30 or 40 years. And basically everybody should understand what, how they tie out to the financials of the company. Mm -hmm. And so I've talked a lot about innovation and how engineers are underutilized and so forth. At the same time, there's a discipline in the finance community that frankly is useful for engineers to understand, 100%. right? Because it lets them think for themselves, hey, you, you wait a minute, I'm going to spend an hour doing this task. Mm -hmm. What would it save the company if I spent a half an hour doing right. this task and I did it better right. or three times better? So that Jack Stack's book's really good for that purpose. And there's a number of other good books out there. But um, I think, you know, my boss just wrote a book on uh, on innovation, uh, Prith Brandegee, really, really interesting. He does case studies um, of different companies that have worked their way through both technology innovation and stage gate processes and and kind of going to where you were a little bit, John, about what's worked, what's not worked. Yeah. And it's they're really quite a quite a good read. But you know, those are those are the kinds of things I think today podcasts and YouTube yep. are a real valuable source of data and information and opinions yeah. that are uh, testing my own point of view on different things over time and changing it uh, based upon that that input. Uh, yeah, no, I think it it never ceases to amaze me. It's like, oh, well, whatever. Like, sir, the breaker at my house keeps tripping. Yeah, Google it and find a YouTube video yeah, on how to right, switch it. Right, like. Right. 
There is literally no reason. It's so much easier for you to ever yeah. not know how to do something right. if you want to try and do yeah. it, right? And you don't have to necessarily the way search engines work. We right. talked about this earlier. You don't have to read the entire body yeah. of knowledge on Moby yeah. Dick to know that the whale was really big, and yeah. dangerous. <laughs> right. uh, you can get that pretty quick in the title. But anyway, um, what uh, I was going to ask you: what are some what are some of your favorite? Normally, it's just your favorite kind of software tools. But mm. I'll ask you: what are some of your favorite? ANSYS tools mm. on the software side that you uh, are either excited about or see people really turning out really interesting, like valuable results with. Yeah, boy, that's a hard one for me because, uh, yeah, because it's a, a whole gamut. Yeah, I won't take it all the time. <laughs> what we're doing in optics is, is pretty exciting because where optics are going in augmented reality and, and virtual reality and these, you know, the metaverse. And mm -hmm. the, when you immerse yourself in those environments, we create that physics. Yeah. Right. Water flowing over yeah. here, wind blowing over there. How that, and then, translate that physics into optics, which right. is what you and I see, uh, that's really kind of curious and creative and incredible. We, we've got a, a, num a number of products that I, I mentioned to LS Diner, which I really find, we just had a, a user's conference here in, in uh, Detroit a few weeks back and thousands of people there. And uh, that tool being used, we brought it out of Lawrence Livermore Lab. It was originally used to, to, as, as a way of measuring damage on nuclear detonation. Uh, and we've, you know, applications over time have developed and we've used it for this crash test capability, but you can use it for anything. I mean, we used it in, in this industry recently to look at what would happen uh, if, a, if a ship collided into the side of an offshore rig. We've used it uh, to see what would happen uh, if an anchor catches a pipeline. We, we, we've used it uh, to see what happens when you drop the reactor. Uh, when you're doing a reactor refueling, what happens to the reactor vessel? If you, uh, or the good containment, thing, yeah. good thing to model. Yeah, right? all, all like, kinds of great. So I like that one, and that's the one I talked to you about cool. on YouTube. You know. um, last thing, where can where can people find you? How do they get in touch with you if they're uh, interested in learning more? Sure. Uh, well, it's scott.parent at ansys.com, recognizing there'll be some spam today that comes out of that. But, but, but uh, ultimately, uh, that's where they, they can yeah. get me. It's you're easy. on LinkedIn, too. And I'm on LinkedIn, yeah. and... and I'm much more customer focused than I've been in any job I've had before. Uh, I spent all my time with customers. So I treat anybody that calls me as a customer. Awesome. Yeah. Scott, I appreciate it, man. This sure. has been uh, a ton of fun. Great. Excited to have you back. Guys, if uh, if you like this episode or any other ones, please uh, give us a review. Give us a like. Subscribe. Um, Scott, thanks again, yeah. man. Appreciate yeah. it. Give us a like. I mean, my, yeah, go check out my Ansys. emotional fragility. <laughs> I got to have the, the thumbs. You know, I, I got to tell you, John, I have a stuffed thumb that I use because when the thumbs, all you could do was give thumbs up uh -huh. and I would be in these telepresence and I, I'm a nice guy. I like to have a lot of fun. So I have a foam thumb that I can go this way with too. <laughs> and uh, it always gets a laugh and, and, and yet you're still sending a message, but, but ultimately, ultimately it's a thumbs up on this. I enjoyed that's my a good, time with uh, you. A lot of fun. That's a good tool. I like that. Appreciate it. Uh, and everybody out there that's manufacturing stuff, please talk to these guys. Cause we all know that uh, our stuff could last longer and be better designed. So appreciate everybody. Um, Christmas is in a couple, um, a little over a week away. So I'll also say Merry Christmas and uh, happy holidays, everybody. And we'll see y'all after, uh, after the break. Thanks. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Goodbye.